welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas! Yeah, the plan is to post this episode on Christmas Day, so hopefully that's what happened. <laughs> Happy birthday, Jesus. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Um, so yeah, we wanted to watch a Christmas movie uh, this for, for this year, for this episode, and uh, we kind of did. We yeah, kind of. We chose a movie that was, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's about Christmas by any stretch of the imagination. No, uh, Christmas is there. But Christmas is there. Uh, the movie in question is 1934's The Thin Man. And uh, it was a movie that you chose when we were trying to figure out what kind of Christmas movie to watch. And, you know, there's so many Christmas movies. You know, do you go with something like, I don't know biblical do you go with something santa claus ish or do you just kind of go like eh, they're at a christmas party it's good enough see i i was thinking more along the lines of like um when we were doing like our halloween thing in october where it was like movies that feel like halloween right and this is definitely a very like of that season yeah it definitely feels feels like that because it well all right so <laughs> that first scene does that take place in september when it's snowing because they keep saying oh that i haven't seen him in three months oh that was three months ago yeah see that was confusing to me because um there's a time jump in there mm. but they it doesn't really feel like a time jump and uh when they started to say it was three months ago i was getting confused about like oh wait a minute are they talking about like wait a minute, where are we here oh he's been since we last saw him it's been three months it took me a little while to like put that together and i think you're right partly because in those early scenes it's snowing outside and yeah it would have to be in september yeah although maybe they were just rounding maybe it was october i mean it snows in october from time to time definitely Um, definitely that was a pretty looked like a pretty substantial snowfall yeah which i i mean the only time i've ever really seen that in october was i I was on top of a mountain columbus day weekend and it was snowing a lot and i feel like if you're on top of a mountain it makes sense um now where does the movie take place it's not in california i know that because that's where uh where Nick and Nora are coming from. Yep, and they arrive in New York City. Okay, it is in New York. And then at the end, they leave New York City to go back to California. Okay, so... Yeah, I, that does not look like any sort of September snow. No. <laughs> not at all. Like, well, I mean, they, they didn't expect it, because when uh, Old Man Winant, in that first scene, he's saying, like, like, oh, I always, you know, get the aches and pains when the weather's acting up or whatever... Right, She's like, well, right. well, the weather's fine. <laughs> and, they, and it's like, oh. And they step outside and he it's was like. right. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, usually we uh, we like, take it for granted that everybody has seen the movie we're talking about. So, you know, we don't really care about spoiling anything. But, I mean, this is a mystery. So for this one, you know, definitely um, you, sh- you should watch it if, if, if you don't want to know. Uh, it's a murder mystery. Yeah, if you don't want to know who done it. It is then, a whodunit, uh, yeah, for sure. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna say it. We're and it was, it was fun to sort of hash it out as, uh, as I was watching the movie and try to formulate my sus, get my suspects, and uh, try to figure out who, uh, who it was. He did a good job. 
and I called it out right before because there's an ending scene where uh, where uh, Nick Charles, the uh, the detective in question here, uh, calls all of the suspects together at a dinner party, and as everyone was coming in, I was like, I, I, I made my I made my call, and I uh, I pinned him, nailed him dead to rights. I love that whole bit. Um, it was very tense. Getting everybody together and having like the, the cops dressed up as waiters and everything. Yeah, it was really cool. Line. And that is, um, that's a feature throughout the Thin Man series. Um, like the, the climax. So they always kind of gather the suspects together and he's like, I know who did it. And, and then he kind of like walk through. Yeah. How the murder took place why uh, why things happened the way they did and i mean it's you know it's it's that sort of like classic sort of uh, you know sherlock holmes and watson kind of thing which they specifically compare themselves to uh the two detectives in question here are nick and nora their husband and wife nothing to do with any kind of infinite playlists um but they they they, they there's at one point in the in, in the movie where they compare themselves to sherlock holmes and watson um, and they are, you know, a, a very different kind of, uh, of duo than say a Sherlock and Watson. Um, but the mystery was, uh, was pretty, uh, genuinely intriguing and pretty thrilling. I mean, by the end, I was sort of like waiting on bated breath, breath to see who the, the killer was, especially since I wanted to be right, so. <laughs> yeah, it, this kind of works uh, on the same level that like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein works, where um, like if you remove the comic element from the film, it still ha- holds up as an example of its genre. Like for Abbott and Costello, that would be like a horror movie, and for this, it's a murder mystery. If you didn't have the wisecracking husband and wife at the center of it, you could still have like this story happen. Yeah. It would just with some other detective, and it would be like, oh, okay, that's yeah. A if, neat the, if the detective mystery. was kind of taking, yeah, a bit acting a bit more seriously, and you know, yeah. But these, uh, this, this movie, they're having a lot of fun doing this movie. Yeah, absolutely. It reminded me of um, not too long ago we recorded our episode on uh, Rondo Hatton, and one of the movies, uh, House of Horrors. And one of the criticisms I remember talking about was that <laughs> the, there's this sort of like old school sort of classic Hollywood way of uh of writing that is often uh portrayed by characters with that snappy kind of witty yeah. banter where the characters are very sort of like um you know they just take the everything as it comes and not really taking to anything too seriously you know yeah. even though there's all this serious stuff happening around them and in house of horrors there are these two characters who are that way and it just came off so poorly, in my opinion, and made them very unlikable characters. Yeah. Because they just seemed like just cynical assholes. <laughs> Whereas this is an example of where it really works. Where, like, they're, it actually, they feel very charming and uh, are inter- very entertaining. Well, and also it helps that in this, I mean, Nick and Nora clearly love each other. And then Nora is concerned for, uh, like, Dorothy and her family and yes, everything. Yes, exactly. Like, they're, actually... they're compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. 
like she, yeah she keeps saying like oh i feel so bad for that girl like don't you want to help them like oh we should call them let them know and instead of just being like well it sucks for you <laughs> you <Yeah>. know <laughs> in the way that it was and it just like it just irritated me to no end those those characters in uh in house of horrors but yeah in this it's like yeah they're super likable see i thought you were gonna when you brought up house of horrors i thought you were gonna mention um that uh that like like the copy boy or whatever <laughs> right <laughs> who just like came on screen for like a few seconds and just kind of took over um uh, which didn't really work out that well for that movie but in this one i thought you were gonna compare it to how in the thin man there's like all these like extra characters around yeah. the edges and it's whereas in this one they add to it and enhance the uh the film yeah the first like uh 20 minutes or so you're introduced to a lot of different characters a lot of different little side things going on. And it did take me a while to sort of like hash out. Because there is a thing where like when you're seeing a lot of new faces for the first time, you're like, oh, okay. And you're seeing a lot of wide shots and stuff. You're realizing like, oh, that's not the same guy. Or that's not the same. That's not the same guy with the with the mustache. That's not the same yeah. girl with the hair that looks exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, all the blonde women have the same <laughs> hairstyle. So it makes it like kind of like, wait a minute, what is it? So once you sort of like, okay, I know who all these people are. But for a little while there, it was like you're just getting introduced like one after another to all these new sets of characters. Um, it became a little like, uh, yeah, tough to kind of balance it all. But by the end, you kind of know everybody and they all have their own distinct personalities. And uh, and there are like these fun little moments. Like at, that, um, at the Christmas party, there's sort of like other new faces there yeah. that are kind of just there as little gags, little sight gags and little like, um, you know, like the, the guy who's depressed and is trying to call his mother and, you know, uh, or the guy with who's missing teeth, who <laughs> just has a couple little one liners to talk about. How he's yeah. like, he really loves, uh, really loves Nick's wife. And then he sees Nora and says, I really love your husband. Um, or the guy promoting the uh, the fighter, he's trying to get Nick to go in on him with him. Yeah, there's just like all this this like just flurry of things happening. That's that's also a recurring thing throughout the the series is um, Nick's always running into old friends from like the criminal world, like even like people who he's had arrested. They still are kind of they hold affection for him. Yeah, they're like, oh, it took a genius to send me to prison and stuff like that, and like. <laughs> He has, like, all these criminal friends yeah, from then, being a cop, basically. And what's-his-name, who shows up in his house, is like, oh, like, uh, you know, my, my, my buddy told me that you were on the level. You know, like, he he has all these, uh, yeah, friendly connections in the in the criminal underworld. That's the one who holds him at gunpoint? Yeah. In the, yeah, Morelli. He's played Morelli, by Edward Brophy, yeah. who shows up in The Thin Man Goes Home um, as a character named... I'm not sure. There's a lot of names in these movies. Yeah. But he shows up as a different character. And the character he plays in that one is um, like a criminal who Nick had had arrested in the past. But a completely different person. Yeah, so this is um, the first film in what became uh, an entire series of movies. Uh, how many films in the series? Is it six? Six. Uh, spanning over a decade 13 years and they were based on a series of books or was it just one novel it was one novel the thin man by dashiell hammett and that so this this original movie is basically an adaptation of that book yeah 
which I, I haven't read the book. I don't know much about the book. Um, I don't think it was as funny as the movie. Um, at least that's what I've been led to believe. Again, having not read it. And um, so essentially, it was MGM who made the movie. It became a success. They really liked uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy and decided to uh, continue on with those characters in other adventures. And so the, the subsequent movies aren't based on any sort of pre-existing material. Yep. Or nope, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, You've talked to me before about The Thin Man as sort of being a, a, you know, an early example of a successful film franchise. Um, this was 1934, and I guess, yeah, the whole idea of a, of a series of films centered around a character or a pair of actors or something was yeah. relatively new. Yeah, like Tarzan was already going at MGM. Um, there have been a few Tarzan films uh, featuring uh, Maureen O'Sullivan, who's in this. She played uh, Dorothy? Yeah. Um, in fact, this same year, 1934, was when they did uh, Tarzan and His Mate, which is the one with the famous like nude Jane scene. So, if you want to see some 30s nudity, check out Tarzan and His Mate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is it anything like uh, Playmate of the Apes? It's not quite that much nudity, but the quality of the nudity is... Uh... <laughs> anyway. Uh... <laughs> I believe we, uh, we we brought up Playmate of the Apes in a previous episode. and Probably. Your one-line review was, not enough monkey sex. So No, definitely not. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, the uh, initial Tarzan movie, uh, I'm not sure how many of the follow-ups. Um, it was directed by uh, Woody Van Dyke, W.S. Van Dyke, who uh, also ended up directing uh, the Thin Man movies, the first four Thin Man movies. And then he uh, he died, and a couple other people did the last two. It's interesting looking at the way he's credited um, on the movies. Like, in the first two, like, I'm just... Like looking, I have the the DVD box set with all of them in it, uh, which I highly recommend. If people are still out there buying DVD box sets, <laughs> well, I mean, um, it's the kind of thing. I mean, I I'm I'm not sure if the Thin Man movies are available on any sort of digital streaming platform, but it's definitely not the kind of thing that like I don't think is a priority at a place like Netflix or. Hulu. Well, Netflix is apparently against any movie that came out like before. I don't know. There's like a handful of films from before the '70s that are available on Netflix. Yeah, they, I, mean, I mean, they've really changed their. Uh, I mean, they've just changed their their business model. They're not a, a a film streaming service anymore. Really, they're their own content creators, and that's what they're going with. And you know, it's they're like not interested in anything else. It's like what Disney's going to be soon. Yeah, yeah, Disney's just going to have its own thing, and. Uh, that's that but people are gonna have to get the uh film struck and movie and um movie what the, the heck is movie movie m-u-b-i it's the i think it's like film struck it's uh just 
classic films and foreign films and like festival favorites and stuff that are uh, like chosen by experts. Uh, I believe Leonard Maltin's involved in it. Um, just and it's uh, it's a streaming service. I don't know much about it. All I, all I have streaming wise is Netflix and Hulu, and that's just because I have my sister's passwords. Yeah. Well, and Amazon Prime. Um, I'm sure that you could probably find these Thin Man movies like on, uh, you know, to like buy or rent digitally for like a couple bucks or something. But yeah, but I don't know where the do they do the special features streaming? Not not most of the time. That's no. a big reason why I keep buying movies is because like it's like oh I'd like to stream this I'd like to stream it with the commentary oh that's not an option like none of the Thin Man movies have commentaries unfortunately but there is like an extra bonus disc called Alias Nick and Nora, which has, like, uh, like a half-hour documentary on William Powell's career and, like, an hour on Myrna Loy. And then there's an episode of the Thin Man TV series from the 50s uh, with Peter Lawford and Phyllis Kirk, who most people know as Lois Lane, um, and also, like, a radio broadcast of the Thin Man. Just It's, like, fun stuff like that that I don't know where to stream stuff like that. Yeah. But anyway, the whole reason I brought up the box says because like I was just like looking at the backs of the DVDs and it has like the little like cast and crew thing at the bottom. It's like the first two it just says like directed by W. S. Van Dyke, and then directed by W. S. Van Dyke the second, and then directed by Major W. S. Van Dyke <laughs> the second. So it's like his name keeps expanding, and then on the next one it's directed by Richard Thorpe. And and then after that, Edward Bazell. But, yeah. So, he became Major W.S. Van Dyke II. And then, after uh, Shadow of the Thin Man, he passed away. And Richard Thorpe and Edward Bazell did the last two. I don't know much about them. I, I haven't... The Richard Thorpe movies I've seen, I haven't really liked. I know he did the 50s Ivanhoe with Elizabeth Taylor, uh, which is just boring. And Edward Bazell, uh, I think he's most well known for doing like two of the worst Marx Brothers movies. So have you seen other films with William Powell and Myrna Loy either together or separate? It's very possible, but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Well, if you've seen a movie, a Hollywood movie from the early 1930s that has, um, what were once con, uh, referred to as Oriental characters, <laughs> you could have possibly seen Myrna Loy because until about 1934, um, they were usually casting her uh, as like ethnic characters, often in yellow face. Most famously in uh, the Mask of Fu Manchu, where she played Boris Karloff's daughter, uh. <laughs> which uh, she always remembered fondly because she and Karloff thought it was just all ridiculous. So they were like, well this is a ridiculous movie let's play it ridiculously and they just enjoyed it as like a campy film and uh it kind of makes it entertaining yeah i'm just pulling up uh myrna loy on imdb here and just to give a quick once over she was john dillinger's favorite actress and um the first movie that she made with William Powell was also 1934. It's called Manhattan Melodrama. And John Dillinger was in hiding from the feds. And uh, he snuck out and went to see 
Manhattan Melodrama in theaters, and they gunned him down on his way out. Wow. And that, uh, that gained that movie a little notoriety. And, um, that was also directed by W.S. Van Dyke, and he saw um, the chemistry between William Palmer and Alloy on that, and he insisted that they be paired for The Thin Man, and then they ended up doing all the Thin Man movies together, plus I think like five other movies together, and they were just like um, this great pair, this, this great like movie couple. Like, only on screen, but... Off screen, William Powell was with... Uh, he was engaged to Gene Harlow. And uh, he was, at one point in time, married to Carol Lombard. And I once... <laughs> Alright, so, my first semester at Purchase, I uh, had to give a presentation on the movie My Man Godfrey, starring William Powell, in Topics in Classical Cinema. And I made a joke... It was a horrible joke. I don't remember what exactly it was. It was I mentioned how William Powell had been engaged to both Gene Harlow and Carol Lombard and how they had both died young. And I was like, so ladies, don't go getting engaged to William Powell or something <laughs> really <laughs> stupid like that. <laughs> but um, there was like this one girl who laughed clearly politely. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, ended, I ended up dating her for a short while. And she actually kind of reminded me of Myrna Loy. Oh, uh, she was a lanky brunette with a wicked jaw, as William Powell says of Myrna Loy in this movie, or rather as Nick Charles says of Nora Charles in this movie. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> Have you seen My Man Godfrey? No. I love that movie. Um. Now, I was kind of surprised to uh, to find as I was watching this movie, because the Thin Man series is something that, like, I've always heard about <clears throat> for over the years when you, you know, you start looking at, like, classic movies and stuff. The Thin Man comes up, and uh, I always just assumed that the Thin Man was the detective, that he was referred to as the Thin Man. That He's the one who, who's always showing up. <laughs> But, uh, Especially with the Thin Man working to the titles of every, of every single one. Yeah. Um, but no, the Thin Man in, in question here is the uh, the supposed the suspected killer. Um, and then, as we find out later, spoilers: uh, the actual victim uh, is the Thin Man. And uh, so it's kind of funny. Some of these other Thin Man movie titles. You know, so you've got the Thin Man. The second movie is called After the Thin Man. Like, now, that, that makes, makes sense, sense because yeah. it's essentially like the Thin Man is like, you know, you could say it's like the case of the Thin Man. You know, that's like, that's what that the case is called. So then it's like After the Thin Man is like, all right, so after that's done, what's next? And then the third movie is Another Thin Man. Now, this one, it's like, all right, so <laughs> it could be like, oh, this the case in this movie, it's just like that Thin Man case. Like, that could be go- what they're going for. But it's also... It's from 1939, which is the same year as Son of Frankenstein, which also has, like, an interesting thing with the titles. Like, wait, who's, who's son and who's bride and ghost and everything? Right. Um, because in another Thin Man, Nick and Nora have a baby. So it's like, oh, uh, here's another Nick 
it's actually Nicky Jr. But like that he's not the thin man, so that's not another thin man. So does the case have anything to do with like a thin man, like as a suspect or as a uh, victim? I mean, there's thin man in it. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. So then the fourth movie is Shadow of the Thin Man. Now I would suspect that like oh okay like if you're connecting it it's like the the shadow of the thin man some sort of like leftover uh so, so something from the original thin man comes back to haunt them i mean people still like when meeting nick charles or seeing him they'll be like oh you know we remember the great job you did with that thin man case so it's like oh that shadow is still hanging over him okay okay <laughs> you could argue that i guess but then, with the next one... The Thin Man goes home. Yeah, no. Alright, Nick and Nora Charles go to Nick's parents' house out in the Midwest to so, go so visit his own hometown. By this time, Nick <laughs> is the Thin Man. So, it, like, it's sort of like how the monster has become Frankenstein. Yeah, which, I mean, he's, and he's not a Thin Man. And in that one, I mean, you know, this is a, this is a decade after the Thin Man, and they're getting into middle age, and, like, it's... No, I don't. That one's sort of the um, escape from the Planet of the Apes or Star Trek for the Voyage Home of the series. Okay. Where okay. it's like they're taking these like people out of the city and kind of bringing right, them to bring the countryside. The... Yeah. And, like, they're interacting gotcha. with normal folk, but I don't know. And then the final film is Song of the Thin Man. Yeah. Which that sure. i mean in it the person uh like who is killed is a he's a musician and there's like a clue hidden in a song he wrote but like he's not the thin man he's i guess he's another thin man you could say or i don't don't know song of the thin man is sort of a weird ending to the series because all right so the thin man 1934 you meet this great couple and they're in love, and they've got this banter, and they're somewhat hip, I'd say, even though they're clearly, like, adults in, like, their late 30s, early 40s. By Song of the Thin Man, it's, um, it has this weird, you know, this late 40s, like, jazz flavor to it, and everybody's using hip jazz lingo, and the Charleses, they just don't know what these kids are talking about these days. <laughs> And I, I kind so of they're out of touch. Yeah, and I kind of don't like that. Because um, they're still great. And, um, ah, and Myrna Loy remained very hot. <laughs> yeah, she's very beautiful in The Thin Man. In this, at least, you know, in this first movie. Yeah. Um, boy, I, her wardrobe is just fantastic, too. Yeah. Like, it seems like every scene she's in some new flowy gown thing that's just the... Uh, more remarkable than the last <laughs> now who did those i don't know oh. who did do those i don't know why are you asking me i've never seen this movie <laughs> I should, before. well i'm sure it was in the credits that we just watched a couple times <laughs> <laughs> who was the the house um designer at mgm at the time i can't really think of it are you trying to find the the costume designer of the thin man yeah because i just i I don't know. I feel like I should know, even if not like the spe- those specific outfits on this specific movie. Like each uh, studio had like their person. Like on the Universal movies, it always says "Gowns by Vera West." Mm. I don't know who the hell Vera West is or anything about her. I just know that like, oh, 
She's always got that credit. For all I know, it's not even a person. For all I know, there's some company called Vera West. Well, according to uh, IMDb, the costume and wardrobe department was headed by Dolly Tree on wardrobe in The Thin Man. I've never heard of Dolly Tree. Hmm. I was expecting one of those names, like, you always see, like, Sound by Douglas Shearer or, um, you know, Sets by uh, Cedric Gibbons. I don't know. Well, she definitely has plenty of uh, credits to her name in the wardrobe department. 138 on uh, on IVB. I will not uh, <laughs> bore you with by listing them off, but uh, can you list one notable one that you've seen? Oh boy, let's see. Going back, going back to. Uh, oh well, I see uh, a night at the opera. There you go. Marx Brothers. Directed by the overrated Sam Wood. And Mad Love. So. I, and I'm sure many more. But uh, Oh, and Shadow of the Doubt, I just saw. That's cool. Shadow of the what? Shadow of a Doubt? Did I say oh, that? Shadow of a Doubt. This is Shadow of the Bat. Oh, wait. No, this is not the same Shadow of... This is not the... Okay, yeah, this is not the Hitchcock version of Shadow uh, of the Doubt. Yeah, this is a 1935 movie also called shadow of a doubt or no this is shadow of doubt so different thing entirely so fake news yeah forget all that (laughs) but anyway yeah i was impressed by (laughs) by uh nora's gowns yeah so these these these, uh this this pair of uh i'm i'm gonna take a guess in subsequent films does nora take more of an active participating role in the investigation or is she still sort of relegated to, like, you know, the supportive and, uh, you know, very well-capable wife of uh, of the detective. That she's always saying, you know, like, oh, you should, you should take this case or, you know. Um, all right, so one really disappointing aspect of the sequels, or like, well, the series as it progresses is... By the end of the second movie, um, it's revealed that Nora is pregnant. Oh, right. Yeah, like you said, they have a, a kid in the third one. Yeah, in the third so one, sure... they have a baby. Okay, so then she becomes... In the fourth one, of... they have a little kid. Yeah. In the fifth one, they go home, the little kid is somewhere else. In the last one, the kid is Dean Stockwell. <laughs> uh, the same year that he was in Gentleman's Agreement, actually. So she... Be... But sort of becomes the mother the like, mother and the, like and yeah. she's still you know she's very attractive and she's still witty um but like by the end there's this thing where like she's trying to get nick to like drink less which that's a huge thing in this well, movie where they're ju- both getting that's drunk what i was up. just gonna say if she's pregnant in during during the second and third movies like is she still drinking as heavily as she is in the first yeah, like, i feel like um I mean, I, I don't know if... You know what? I feel like saying that she's pregnant in the second one isn't really a spoiler because they have a kid in the third one. It's not like... I'm not going to tell you who the killer is in the second one or anything like that because the second one is probably the best of the sequels. Um, but there's, like, hints throughout the movie of, like, oh, something's weird. Like, she wakes up in the middle of the night and, like, asks Nick to make her scrambled eggs. And, like, nothing is made of it. And at the end, she's, like, knitting a little booty. And he's like, wait, what? What are you doing? And she's like, 
some detective you are, and then you think back on all these things that right, happened in the movie, right. you're like, oh. But, um, yeah, she sort of just becomes, like, domesticated. I feel like if this was a film, or if this was a series that was made at some other studio, uh, she might have just, like, kept her, uh, her vitality, I guess. But this was, you know, this was MGM, and uh, all but the first two were made you know, post Thalberg and, you know, Louis B. Mayer, he was all like, you know, like mom and apple pie. Everything has got to be kind of sweet and sentimental. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I, they're still fun movies. Right. And I still like watching all the movies, but it's her, it, kind it of is weird watching away. her character. Yeah. Because I, I like the dynamic that they have in this movie, just the way that, that their that their life is where it's like they've got the dog they don't need a yeah. kid they don't they have each other and like that's enough you know and it seems like they're they're just very much in love with their lifestyle it seems they're very much in love with um just like like there's this there's this great scene where it's like it's christmas morning yeah and uh nick is just laying on the couch and is sort of just like uh fiddling around with this uh, this was it like a BB gun? Yeah. Uh, that he his uh, Christmas present. His Christmas present. <laughs> He's just shooting balloons, and it's just like, uh, and she's just dressed in this like full fur coat, which was her Christmas present, and they're just like, and then it's just you know, this is what their life is without any kind of like responsibilities or anything, because they, they they mention also that like Nora inherited all of these like businesses from her father. Yeah. So they're well off. They don't need money. Yeah. He's a re- he's a retired detective at this point he stopped being a detective because he has money he doesn't need to do it anymore and yeah. it's her <laughs> they're just kind con- of pushes him back into it yeah they're just content to just like throw parties drink their you know just drink incessantly mm. and uh and just you know <laughs> just live day to day and like there's something uh i mean who doesn't really want that in life right. <laughs> you know <laughs> And then well, they have I would like the drinking, baby, but, uh, and then yeah. they have the baby, and it ruins everything. Yeah, Asta's enough. Everybody should just have a little dog. <laughs> I love it. What do you think of Asta? I mean, the little dog is adorable. Yeah. What kind of dog is that, by the way? It's uh, like a Scotty? Some sort of terrier. Yes, yeah, it looks almost like a Scotty terrier, but like like a white, or like a blonde, maybe. It's, the movie's in black and white, so I can't really tell, but it looks like a gray, grayish, whitish, blondish, like Scotty terrier. See, I always just think of Asta as just as a black and white dog because I've only right. yeah. all the movies are black and white. Well, that's it. what I was trying to think of, like, <laughs> how, like what color is the dog? I don't know. It reminded me of um, in uh, oh, what's that called? Another movie. Well, it's a based on it's a comic strip. Um, oh, it was made Snoopy. into a movie. No, no, no. <laughs> it was made into a movie by uh, Steven Spielberg. And Peter Jackson. Oh, the Adventures of Tintin. Tintin. There you go. The Adventures. It reminded me of Tintin's dog. Tintin. Snowy. I've never actually read any of them. Oh. Well, in French class, we had to read a few briefly, but I never really. I don't remember much. Yeah, uh, he's got a dog named Snowy, and I think it's like the same breed of dog. I had to guess. A wire fox terrier. 
wire fox. Okay. Or at least the, the actor playing Asta was a wire fox terrier. I'm not sure if Asta the character was a different breed. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. But yeah, Skippy was the actor. And uh, he, he was also in... He... There's Tintin. Or there's Snowy. Oh, okay, yeah. Tintin's dog, uh, Snowy. I'm definitely seeing it. I wonder if... When did Tintin start? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. I think that's... Uh... Was it post-1934? Um... I just take a quick look here. What? What is the... Is it... Le Bande Dessinée? Is that French for comic book? Oh. Okay, yeah. Tintin started back way back in 1929. Oh, uh, okay. So, yeah, not an inspiration. But yeah, um... If you haven't seen the Thinaman movie, so you're like, who the hell is Asta? Well, it's the same dog who played Mr. Smith in The Awful Truth with Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. Have you seen that one? Nope. That is a wonderful film. It's a Leah McCary movie. Um, they act, it's the main characters get divorced at the beginning, and um, what sort of like leads to them still being in each other's lives throughout the film is that they have joint custody of the dog. <laughs> oh, so boy. like Cary Grant has to go to her apartment and pick up, pick the, dog, up the dog, and then they can you know, and then yeah, um, and then 1938, uh, he was George and bringing up baby, who. Uh, ends up stealing Cary Grant's intercostal clavicle, the uh, the dinosaur bone that he needs, and burying it somewhere. Oh, that rascally dog. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he would sometimes be credited as Asta. Like Asta as himself? Or Asta as, I don't know if in, they happen to bring a baby, like Asta as George or something. Or, oh, really? Because he um, was so famous as Asta. Yeah. Um... Yep, Bring Up Baby, he was credited as Asta. Uh, and a couple other movies credited as Asta. Sometimes credited as Skippy, which was his real name. Sometimes as Asta, and they switched. And then um, Skippy and W.S. Van Dyke, I guess, passed away around the same time. Because uh, Shadow of the Thin Man was the last one for both of them. But um, The Thin Man Goes Home and Song of the Thin Man, um, Skippy's successor, played Asta in those movies. I, I like that in this one sometimes th there's like a lot of like asta business in the series right in this one they, they use him sparingly and he's adorable and he works and he's just got a little stuff and i like that it, it kind of ends with him yeah and like he kind of has you know for most of it he's just sort of there as a little comic relief moment where it's like Oh, there's all this racket going on in the house. What's Asta up to? Oh, he's he doesn't like it. He's going to his room, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or like, you know, oh oh, there's gunfire. Where's Asta? What's Asta doing? Oh, he ran underneath the uh the, underneath the chair. And uh, you know, but but he does actually help solve the crime by finding the dead body. Yeah. So uh, you know, he's, he's the hero. He's the hero of the film. You you might say that. <laughs> Because if he, because if uh, you know Nick went to the, to the to the factory, without Asta, then he he probably would never would have found him. Yeah. So. The body in quicklime, just like in the Beyond, with Spike. That's right. Yeah. Quicklime. It's a pretty grisly idea for, 
this movie. I mean, they don't show you anything, of course, but, you know, you think about, like, oh, that's how this old man we met at the beginning of the movie, that's how he uh, was taken... I mean, he was already dead, I'm assuming, because they shot him, but that's how he was disposed of. Just kind of melted away. Yeah. Um, it's weird that that one character just gives his, like that's the thin man, <laughs> and then it's this yeah this whole guy series. who we see for the first like two minutes of the movie, goes on to define this entire uh, series. Yeah, it is funny. Uh, yeah, we I like that we were introduced to the mystery first. Before we know anything about Nick and Nora Charles. And, um, it, I was thinking, uh, like on my way over here, how it's kind of like in Fargo, the Coen Brothers movie, where the whole, like, crime and everything, and, and like the whole plot of the film is set in motion. And then it's like, maybe like 45 minutes into the film when we meet Francis McDormand's character, mm. who's, you know, like the, the cop who's gonna, like, try and figure everything out. Um, it's not quite that in this, in, like in this 91 minute movie, I think it's maybe like 15 minutes. Yeah. Which is still a lot of screen time before we meet the leads. Yeah. And there's a nice, uh, introduction to Nick when we're at the party and we kind of, the camera pushes through a crowd of people and, uh, and the crowd parts and mm. they're at the bar, you know, the, being the, the alcoholic that he is, he's teaching the bartenders how to make his drink correctly which allegedly is wrong i guess because well, that's the way he likes it because i <laughs> um my ex was a bartender and i remember like just making a random uh reference to the thin man and saying like how dry martini must always be shaken to waltz time and she got like mad at me it was like you don't shake martinis and i was like no, it's like from the Thin Man. She's like, you, "That's not the right way to do it." And I'm like, "I don't know. It's in the movie. Why wouldn't? Why would they make it up?" <laughs> James Bond shakes his martinis. Yeah, I said that too. I'm like, and she's like, "Well, that's <laughs> a specific way. That's not the way." And I'm like, "We should break up." <laughs> I didn't say that. If I had, it would have saved me like at least a year. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, that moment when we first see him that the director told William Powell, like, all right, I'm going to set up this shot and like set up the lights and everything. You just run through it a few times, uh, just, you know, just practice with it and I'll let you know when we're ready. And he's like, okay. And so William Powell was kind of running through it and like, just, he made up a few bits and he was just messing around or whatever. And then all of a sudden here's the director goes, all right, print it. And that was the take in the movie. That was just him messing around there. And I feel like there's a there's this looseness to the movie. And yeah, I feel like that definitely. happens a lot. We just like William Powell and Myrna Lloyd just like goofing around with each other in the background and stuff and just having fun. Yeah. And uh, it's infectious. And then Myrna Lloyd's introduction, bringing Asta into the room. Yeah, That's she good. comes in sort of like a hurricane carrying these giant pile of boxes and uh, all of her Christmas presents cuz it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they go spilling out everywhere. Um, and being told that can't she can't bring that dog in here, but Asta's very well behaved, so yeah. So Asta saves the day yet again. They do have a bit of a sense of entitlement. 
Yeah, I would say so, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, no, you don't understand. It's my dog. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this... Uh, I don't know what it is about detectives and alcohol, or at least in the movies and, like, crime fiction of that era... They're just, like, always drinking. This one at least references the fact, like, wow, he's drinking a lot. <laughs> like, it doesn't mention it as a problem or anything. But, um, you know, the movie is very aware of it, and it's often commented upon. But, like, something like um, The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler, um, I never really noticed. Like, I read that book uh, this just last winter, because I was going to see the Howard Hawks film with... Uh, Bogey and McCall, I was going to go see it at Proctor's. So I was like, oh, I should read the book before I go see it this time. Because like, I've seen the movie before, but I never read the book. And reading the book, it's like, every couple minutes, he's like, oh, and then he took a shot of this. And like, oh, he poured a... <laughs> and I'm like, wait, this is like over the course of not that long. Like, right. <laughs> how drunk is this guy? And then like, I later found out that Raymond Chandler was an alcoholic himself, so he probably didn't even think of it. He's like, no, that's he's what like, you that's do. That's just what people do, right? Yeah. <laughs> But I don't know much about Dashiell Hammett. I, um, I'm i going to assume he was an alcoholic just because he was a, a writer in that period. <laughs> and that seems to be what they did. Like uh, Hemingway and Faulkner and whatnot. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Fitzgerald. As the, it was Hemingway that said, uh, edit sober, write drunk. Uh. Um, yeah, I mean, the drinking thing. I mean, I, you know, I... <laughs> it definitely reached a point in the movie where I was like, because you know the introduction of the characters is that he's at the bar, he's making his martini, and then they sit down. His wife meets him at the table, and she says, "How many have you had?" And he says, "Oh, this will be six And she's gets pulls the waiter over and is like, "You know, waiter, you know, five more, line them up," because she's gonna catch up to him like right. all in one go, pretty much. And then it cuts to the next morning, and she's. He's totally hung over and so i thought okay maybe that's just like you know the the joke of, of the drinking thing but then it's just this like <laughs> it just goes on and on and on through the whole movie they're just always any opportunity to like take a drink of something um yeah but they're uh you know they're charming alcoholics yeah well they're rich yeah, so it's like... And they're in the city, so they never need to drive. That's true. Yeah. If you're a rich person in the city, why not just keep drinking? <laughs> the relationship uh, between Nick and Nora Charles is kind of like revolutionary for uh, like relationships between men and women in film. Because it's like, here's this married couple... But they're happy about it, and they're in love, and they're having fun. And often it's like, oh, marriage is like, that happens right after the end credits. Like, oh, the couple got together, and they're right. going to get married. Right. Or, like, marriage is portrayed as like, oh, this is something that, like, happened to your parents. <laughs> or it's just like, this is just like a thing um, to get out of. But it's like, oh, this can just be like this fun thing. That two people in love do. Yeah, and and they are, they feel like they treat each other as equals. Yeah. And, 
yeah, like you said, they're just they're like married. <laughs> marriage for them looks like the most the the best thing in the world. Yeah, and um, I mean, this is like this year, nineteen thirty four is like sort of a turning point for romantic comedies. You've also got it happened one night, right? Coming out that year for Frank Capra, uh, Howard Hawks is doing twentieth century with um, Carol Lombard and John Barrymore, and. Carol Lombard eventually became, like, the queen of the screwball comedy. She's the one who allegedly, uh, like, began calling them that. Um, and you've got um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers making their first film as a team. They'd already done the film Flying Down to Rio, and they danced together in that. But the first film that was made as a, like, an Astaire-Rogers musical was The Gay Divorcee in 1934. And so, like, you, you have all these, like, templates set up for, like, what romantic comedies are going to be for, like, the next decade right there, along with The Thin Man. And I love that era. Like, the mid to late 30s and early 40s romantic comedies, like, um... You've got, like, His Girl Friday. Yeah. And Bringing Up Baby, Philadelphia Story, all sorts of fun stuff. Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Which I, the Hitchcock film that I, I did not like the first time I saw it because I, my hopes for it were very high because I was like, oh, I love screwball comedy. I love Hitchcock. He's going to do something amazing with it. But no, he just made a really good screwball comedy. And um, I don't know. It took me a while to just accept that. Mm -hmm. That it was just, you know, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, there's some, there's some fine films in there. Yeah, speaking of uh, Hitchcock, there was a character in this movie that kind of reminded me of like some like a kind of character that you might find as a supporting role in like a Hitchcock movie. Yeah, our good friend Nolan Murphy. <laughs> yeah, like also kind of reminded me of that as well. Um, no, I, I, what was his name? Gilbert. Yeah, who was the uh, the 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 brother of uh, Dorothy. And I guess the son of the Thin Man. Yeah, who has a mother fixation. Yeah, he says he's he uh, he's talking about the Oedipus complex and all that. Which is weird because he accuses his sister of having the Oedipus complex. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, sure, I've got a mother fixation, but it's I haven't gotten to the point where I. And then it kind of trails yeah. off there, and it's kind <laughs> it's of like, like Ugh, okay. But like, I think because he's talking about his sister in relation to his father, so I believe that would be called. Uh, the Electra complex, I think, because because Oedipus, that's is mother the, and son. Yeah, Electra yeah. would be father daughter, but it, in any regard, it is an odd thing to just hear somebody just randomly saying in a movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of any era. Yeah. Um. But yeah, he's like he's got the the, the glasses, and he's almost like um. He's a bit of a sociopath. And I don't mean that as, as like, the kind of idea of, like, oh, he's going to go kill somebody or he's a serial killer or anything like that. But, like, somebody who doesn't really have uh, any real kind of emotions about things, about, uh, you know, towards other people. Yeah. And because of, so they kind of set him up as, like, a potential red herring, you know, of somebody who's like, well, he's a weird guy. Maybe he killed his own father. He's talking about the Oedipus complex, mm. you know. Um 
which is all about killing your father. Uh, so, yeah, he's always got that big book. He's reading, reading facts and stuff about the, the minds of killers and everything. In classical Hollywood, if a character is always reading, mm, it's pretty suspicious. Yeah, what's up with that? Why are you, why are you reading so much? <laughs> and, like, the cops are just genuinely creeped out by him. Everybody's creeped out by him. Yeah, well, I mean, he is asking, like, hey, can I get a look at that dead body? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, why? He's like, well, you know, I just got some... I got some theories. I want to take a look at that body. <laughs> He's like, very much like Hume Cronin in Shadow of a Doubt as the next door neighbor. Yeah. Always trying to come up with the best way to kill somebody. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned this yet, but we've got the Joker without his makeup in this movie. Oh, did you not notice? <laughs> Caesar Romero. Caesar Romero's in this movie? Okay, see, I thought you would have noticed it in the opening credits and then been looking for him. No, I didn't I didn't see. Okay, wait a minute. Is he Oh, who is he? He doesn't have his mustache, does he? He has a mustache. He does? Yeah. Who the hell is he? He's Chris Jorgensen. Re- no kidding. Yeah, he's the guy who is technically married to Winans ex. But because he is still married to his previous wife, it's not a valid marriage, which is why she gets to still have the money from the will. Well, it's funny because he's kind of got like that. He's kind of he's kind of got like a Jack Napier gangster vibe going on anyway. Hmm. As you know, that being from the 1989 Tim Burton film, um, when you see like the flashbacks of uh, of Jack Napier, you know. Yeah. I don't know, he kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Slick backed hair. Yeah, but. Slicked uh, back, not slick backed hair. <laughs> no, I had no idea that that was uh, Cesar Romero. That's crazy. I mean, yeah. he, I mean, when Cesar, when when the mo- most uh, recognizable thing that you know him is uh, the Joker in the 60s Batman show, it's kind of hard to yeah realize that it's him when it's such a such a completely different kind of uh performance yeah, but you have to look at the joker and be like okay now subtract 32 years and all that makeup and and, then pick and all of the manic <laughs> insanity that he's uh yeah this is that he's acting you know? opposite sort of performance very very subdued here yeah oh that's really cool and then there's i guess that t- that's another connection to uh, house of horrors Oh, yes, because Alfred was in House of Horrors. Yeah, Alan Napier. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Um, and then we've got uh, Edward Brophy as Morelli, who um, was also in Todd Browning's Freaks and Carl Freund's Mad Love. So there's that. I I enjoy him. And I, I always enjoy him, but it's like, that's, um, you don't hear that accent anymore. That, like, New York, uh, I don't know if I can even do it. Like, <laughs> I don't know, like, like the way the Three Stooges would talk or something. Like, oh, wise guy, eh? Like, well, cause I don't it's, know what that it's was. like that super but, ex- exaggerated, uh, you know, kind of New York accent. But, like, people used to just talk like that. And you, but it's like a, an accent that is just—I'm pretty sure—just doesn't exist anymore. And like I, I'm wondering if I ever just like am walking around Brooklyn 
if I'll just hear somebody doing like what well, used to be like, oh, that's that Brooklyn accent. <laughs> but no, that's if somebody in in Brooklyn is speaking and they're speaking English, they're usually just like, hey, what's up? Like, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, there's the whole thing from that time period, the transatlantic accent that is not, you know, commonly used at all anymore, unless you're imitating that era. Boston has held on to its accent, and uh, I admire them for that. I was really um, just, just pleased as punch when we went to Philadelphia last year, and there were a couple guys in the bar who just had like this like Philly accent. That remember the guys we gave the picture to? Right. Yeah. Because we didn't have time to like finish the picture, so there were just these other guys who were just hanging out. We were like, oh, ha- have this. And I can't do a Philly accent at all, but it was just so, uh, I don't know. I just, we, we, everybody's talking the same these days. It, it gets boring. Not really. Not, I mean, especially like in the United States, there are so many different kinds of, uh, you know, accents and stuff. In movies? In movies? Like, I feel like in movies, everybody is kind of like... I guess they're, yeah, movie star, like a lot of the, 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 big, the big movie stars all kind of have a similar accent um i don't know you get you got your um your your people like uh your ben affleck's and your matt damon's who have the boston thing going on and then you you have your matthew mcconaughey's i feel like with uh affleck and damon they sort of like you know they'll play it up a bit for certain roles oh yeah for sure play it down for other things yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, you know, you don't, you don't hear Batman with a thick Boston accent. Well, no, because he's from Gotham. Yeah, exactly. So that's <laughs> that's the job of an actor, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> did he growl? Was he? Did he like a Christian Bale thing, or was it just like Ben Affleck no, talking? No, they kind of put a um, like a voice modulator in the cowl. So it kind of like got, within the film, like you, the yeah, within the context but, of the universe, oh, like okay. he has like a so it, he doesn't have to be like, rah, 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 rah. it can just he just talks normally and it kind of comes out you know distorted enough that you could take the leap that like oh okay somebody like you know Commissioner Gordon isn't gonna pick up on the fact that oh I want there to be something in one of the DC movies now where a villain somehow like hacks into batman's voice modulator and just gives him like all these silly voices that sounds like something the joker would do yeah that'd be that's a cool idea i dig it (laughs) don't worry i'm here to help you oh (laughs) damn it what's going on Uh what is that mickey mouse (laughs) gosh (laughs) or a jar jar you can make him uh now wait no dc they're not owned by disney yet right not yet, no. Okay. They're Warner Brothers, Time yeah. Warner. So, unless Disney wants to <laughs> buy another friggin' movie studio, then uh... why not? <laughs> so we're a little off topic now, but uh... yeah, yeah. I like the way that everybody talks in this movie because it's it's not like um, the way people speak in real life. It's like, it's, there's witty banter. There's not enough witty banter in day-to-day existence. Well, because it's hard to be witty on the spot. No, be witty right now. 
I, I can't. Okay, whatever. But you'd think somebody <laughs> who has a podcast could, you know, should be uh, better at that. But I'm not. Well, I mean, you know, we should we should be open to the audience. Each episode starts out as six hours, and then Max edits it down to the, just the gems. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what you're hearing is the best of of a six hour uh, yeah marathon yeah. talkathon, and oftentimes it's not very. You really don't want to hear what we cut out. <laughs> But this is so. This is seven years after the jazz singer. Uh, what do you think of the sound in this film? Um, trying to think of any like good uses of like sound design. Well, one scene that was like singled out um, by a film critic writing in the late thirties was the party sequence okay yeah because there's all the criminals. a lot of uh, overlapping dialogue a lot of uh i like the, the part where they're singing oh christmas tree mm. um sort of a lot of drunken revelry revelry going on um revelry revelry drunken revelry yeah um yeah it, it is kind of a, a good example of like oh yeah look you can just have like all of these sounds going on all at the same time and still be able to like you know pick up on who's talking and guide the converse you know follow the conversation that the important stuff that's going on um which i'm sure in, in those early years like there's probably a lot of trial and error with trying to figure out just how m- much you could push that and how you know <laughs> yeah uh until it got just too messy or you know having a party that was not very uh full at all and this is like this is three years before um stage door the gregory lacava film which like that's often pointed to as like oh it has overlapping dialogue it's like so revolutionary and everything it's like but this one and like that stage door is a great movie and it is sort of like proto robert altman in a sense that you've just got all these conversations happening at once throughout um but I don't know that that whole party sequence. I think is uh, when you when you're watching it and you think about it in its historical context, it's it's very impressive. And also, just the the camera moves a lot in that scene. Also, mm-hmm. and the cinematographer on this was the legendary James Wong Howe. Um, who this was, like he'd started out in the teens as a cinematographer he um like this there was a time when like certain actresses would say like oh this person photographs me very well so whatever movie that i do right. this is this is the cinematographer yeah and, l- and like um who who was it uh was it marlena dietrich who had her own like specific lighting setup that she demanded i could see that I'm pretty sure. That oh yeah, and, and uh, was it Stage Fright with Hitchcock, where she kind of like directed the lights, and Hitchcock sort of just like stood back and was like, "All right, like." Yeah, yeah, that sounds yeah, that sounds right. I think it was her who like, basically was like, "Oh no, my face can only be lit like this." Well, Claudette Colbert, um, there was only one. I think her left profile, like, it. You go through all of her movies. Occasionally, you'll see like, she sort of faces forward. You'll get a glimpse of the other side of her face but it's always like this one half of her face you're seeing like in almost every single shot 
and she just like had this like written into contracts and stuff like no no this is the half of me that looks really good is that do you is it, do you think that's actually true like or was she just way self-conscious it's not like she was hiding like a big scar or like a hideous mole on the other side of her face maybe the other side of her face was some other actress who could only be photographed on that side right and yeah. nobody's ever noticed yeah that'd be uh... <laughs> but no i can't i mean claudia colbert she was a beautiful woman i can't imagine like just half of her face being like Ugh, turn around what the hell's going on like audiences are up in arms like yelling at the projectionist like take it off the screen <laughs> i came here for claudette colbert not this hideous beast before me <laughs> but so so james wong how um became connected with the actress uh mary miles minter and um because she had blue eyes which in black and white film of that era um they just they kind of like they were too pale they didn't really show up well uh, and so he devised a way of photographing her where he would put the camera lens in, like he would have a, like a sheet of like black velvet and he would shoot through it. Like he'd cut a little hole in it, put the lens of the camera through it. And the way the, so that would reflect in her eyes. So it's sort of darken the, yeah. Uh, and her, her, her eyes reflection. would appear a little huh. darker and she, he just took a still uh, photograph of her one time. And she saw it and was like, oh my god, you have to shoot movies for me because you made my eyes look dark. And he was like looking at the picture and he's like, oh shit, I don't know what I did. I don't know <laughs> how I got... And it, and then he was like, he went to where he took the picture and was looking around and he was like, oh, okay, that was the reflecting over there. So And then he just like always had like the dark velvet that he shot through for her and for other people with like pale eyes just to get them to show up better. And um, he was also one of the early innovators with the crab dolly, you know, to put the camera on it and have the camera being like moving around. He was doing that in the early twenties. And then um, his, uh, I think it was his first sound film, where he was trying deep focus a decade before Citizen Kane. And um, yeah, he was an innovator. And then he actually. Um, he'd left the country for a little bit like right around the time of the jazz singer and then when he got back to hollywood it was like everything had changed right because now suddenly it was all about sound and yeah and like you had to kind of like clamp the camera down and everything and he had it was like starting from scratch and he sort of like had to build his reputation back up Mm. because people were like oh well that guy yeah he's a great cameraman you know for silent films (laughs) but he doesn't know what he's doing with sound so by the time of the thin man you know he was which is such a funny notion to think about now with the way the technology is you have total freedom with you know sound doesn't ever really factor into how you can move the camera yeah. these days unless you have something like i mean cuz you know unless you have i don't know i know like some of the big IMAX movie cameras like can make a lot of sound um and yeah, I don't know, but it's just, yeah, it is funny that it's just like, oh, well, the worst, this is a sound picture. You can't be moving the camera all around like that. Yeah. Despite the fact that, like, All Quiet on the Western Front in 1930 was moving the camera a lot. And then we mentioned how the camera moves a lot in Dracula and Frankenstein mm-hmm. you know, when we were doing Universal. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, James Wong Howe. I feel like he does great work in this movie with all the shadows and everything. 
and like it's got some interesting angles in there. Um, the director, Woody Van Dyke, sometimes known as One Shot Woody, um, because of his first pension of just saying like, "Oh yeah, that's good enough." Sort of like what you were describing before, with uh, William Powell's. Yeah, it was a very quick and efficient director, but it didn't mean. I'm sorry, not one shot. It was one take, Woody. That's what I was. I'm, I was thinking of William One Shot Bodine, who. Not on the same level as Van Dyke. Sorry. Uh, so one take, Woody. But like, uh, the whole reason he was able to get. Um, William Powell and Myrna Loy to be cast in The Thin Man was because he promised... Because people were like, oh, I don't know, you know, if they'll really work in this kind of, like, light comedy thing. He was like, I promise to bring the movie in in less than three weeks. And they're like, alright, sure. If you can do that, you know, we got these big stars in here, sure. And he, he did. He could do it. He was a very quick, efficient guy. Um, which is why Louis B. Mayer loved him. Because he would just, you know, he would crank out film after film, and you knew you'd, you'd put him somewhere he would do it well, like on any, on any project, and uh, he just adapt to different genres and stuff. Um, when Irving Thalberg died, his widow, Norma Shearer, um, her next movie was going to be Marie Antoinette, this big historical epic directed by Sidney Franklin, who was Thalberg's preferred director. And he was, like, a very, like, laborious worker, um, lots of attention to detail and everything. And then, But once Thalberg was dead, Mayer was like, you know what, let's just do this quickly, take out Franklin, put in Van Dyke. And Norma Shearer was very insulted because she was like, okay, so my husband is no longer in charge and I'm this is just what I'm thought of. But... It turned out okay. I don't know. I it, it, it is a very uh, fast-paced movie, Marie Antoinette. Um, but I understand what Norma Shearer was thinking at the time because of his reputation, but he did the job well. Like, just because you can do something quickly and efficiently doesn't mean that you're not good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louis Jacobs, uh, he wrote the, um, the Rise of the American Film in 1939. Uh, which is a very interesting like history of cinema. Um, he wrote a list of like contemporary directors who were not great, uh, but they were, um, he says, uh, commercially proficient, and occasionally also produce arresting pictures, <laughs> which is a really weird. It's like, like, all right, all right, I'll take it, it, I'll take it, yeah. But yeah, that list was. Um, Mervyn Leroy, Louis Milestone, William Dieterle, Michael Curtiz, Roland Brown, William Wyler, William Wellman, William K. Howard, Gregory LaCava, Frank Borzaghi, George Cukor, Sidney Franklin, and W.S. Van Dyke. Not bad company. I mean, I think almost all of them had films that were either nominated or won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. The only one on there I don't know is Roland Brown. I've never just bothered to look him up. I really don't know who that person is, but every everybody else, I own at least one of their films on DVD. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I mentioned earlier, um, about how like before um, being known as Nora Charles in the Thin Man movies, Myrna Loy was mostly known for playing what were called exotic characters and like ethnic characters and stuff. Uh, 
she had started out in the silent era. She was really close friends with Joan Crawford when they were both kind of like up and coming. Um, she had a, a very small role, sort of like almost in the background in The Jazz Singer. Uh, and then, you know, she did become a huge star after 1934 where she made Manhattan Melodrama and The Thin Man. In 1937, she was voted Queen of Hollywood. Wow. Yes. The king being Clark Gable, which William Powell was a little insulted. Well, had but, she made movies with Clark Gable at all? Uh, yeah, well, Manhattan Melodrama. Was sort of, there was like a romantic triangle with her, William Powell, and Clark Gable. But they were, they were voted on separately. Um, I think it was Ed Sullivan, who was a columnist at the time. Uh, he like took a survey. And, but they had like a little ceremony because they were both MGM contract players also. So that worked out well for them. So they could do, get all this publicity like, oh, we have the king and queen of Hollywood right here at MGM. Well, it's funny. There's a little Clark Gable uh, reference in The Thin Man. In the trailer. Oh, in the trailer. That's right. I was, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, uh... in the trailer, he says, like, it's Nick Charles talking to Philo Vance, who before... The Thin Man, uh, William Powell was known for playing the detective Philo Vance in a series of films for Warner Brothers. Um, but yeah, so, and he, he says like, oh yes, the I think it was like the reason that they're in New York was because there's a new Clark Gable movie that Nora wanted to see. Well, he says uh, Clark Gable is going to be appearing at this place. That's right. And uh, he's like, which my wife is very interested in. I really wish they still did trailers like that where it's not just clips or it's somebody like, I don't know. Like they shoot something for the trailer. Yeah. Well, these days, I mean, people get pretty upset when, uh, things appear in the trailer that wind up not being in the movie. But I mean, this would be something like clearly like, Oh, this is not a scene from the movie. This is like two actors talking about like, Oh, we just made this movie. You guys should check it out. Like, I don't, I don't know. Just something fun like that. Like, does that ever happen anymore? Uh, not that I can think. I can't think of any recent examples. I mean, you know, the the thing that's uh, also going away is that whole, like, the the trailer voiceover that yeah. was so commonplace for so long, you know, which has been, I mean, it kind of, I guess you could say, like, jumped the shark and stuff when it became so referenced and well-known, you know, the whole, like, in a world kind of yeah. deal. I feel like uh, it's all been abandoned for, you know, just the the standard kind of movie trailer where you have like the single piano note, and then some dramatic shot, and then, you know, some dramatic line about like, I only ever knew one thing in life, and then ding, war. Ding. You know, and, and then it just ramps up into like an Inception style, like wah, and big drums, jump, jump, jump. That's all movie trailers are nowadays. I still haven't seen Inception. Is there a lot of wah? Oh, there's movie? a lot of yeah, a lot of oh, wah, okay. yeah, a lot of wah. Lot of wah. Yeah. Uh, well, the trailers were pretty, you know, pretty big on that too. I, I don't know. I just want something like uh, one of my favorites is um, for the the Bishop's Wife from 1947. With, also with Myrna Loy and Cary Grant and David Niven and they're just like walking around like talking about the script for the bishop. I think it's like a producer's going around trying to get it made 
and he talks to these actors is like you guys gonna be in this movie and then like oh this is this fun thing right it's like oh let, we made this movie now let's go film this little skit for it yeah there's also um is it rope where oh, the trailer yes. is like pretty much like a i guess you could say it's like a little like a prologue yeah a prologue to the movie where it's like a whole scene that isn't in the movie but it's like everything it's like the thing that sets up the movie yeah because the guy in the trailer you only see him dead in the movie yeah which that must have been exciting for him because he's like oh i actually have something to do yeah and like all of hitchcock's trailers i I mean for psycho he gives you like a tour of the motel and the house and stuff Mm. like and then there's like this little switch you know you don't want to spoil who's gonna die where in the movie so he pulls back the shower and you have you don't have Janet Lee. You have Vera Miles there screaming. So people watching the movie are like, "Oh, who is that?" They know it's not Janet Lee. But yeah, speaking of David Niven, as I was a few moments ago, um, in the movie Murder by Death uh, from nineteen seventy six, David Niven and Damn it! Who's that really hot woman? Um, there are Ma- there are a lot of them out there. Maggie Smith, <laughs> David Niven, and Maggie Smith. <laughs> okay. <laughs> are uh, they're playing Dick and Dora Charleston in that movie? Dick and Dora Charleston. Yeah. Um, and it's it's the whole movie is this guy. Um, he thinks he's the best detective. He's played by Truman Capote. He invites all these different detectives to his house to witness a murder and try to figure out who did it. Right, yeah, and like and, Peter Sellers is in it. Yeah, have you um, seen it? Uh, yeah, I saw it, oh gosh, probably 20 years ago or so. It was it was a favorite of my dad, and I okay. him showing it to me. Um, if memory serves, Peter Sellers is doing a whole uh, racial caricature thing going on, right? Yeah. Isn't he playing like a Fu Manchu type? Well, no, because uh, Fu Manchu was a villain. He's playing more of like, um, like a Charlie Chan Char- yeah, or a go, Mr. Yeah. Moto type guy. Uh, I think Charlie Chan, because he says uh, number one son, which I think was his... Th- I haven't really seen many Charlie Chan movies. Um, I remember being excited when the Chanthology came out on DVD, because this is the box set. I don't know, but I never <laughs> actually watching any of them. Yeah, and Peter Falk plays like kind of like a Sam Spade type guy doing like a, which at the time Peter Falk was already doing Columbo. Yeah. So like when I was watching it as a kid, I was basically like, oh, Peter Falk is playing Peter Falk. Like I didn't really get that like, oh, he's doing this other thing. Um, and James Coco is doing um, Poirot. And Elsa Lanchester is uh, Mrs. Marp or Miss Marple. This yeah miss marvel um but yeah it's just like all these but anyway that was like i did i had no idea who nick and nora charles were at the time so i just like watched this movie like oh here's like this just elegant couple just being classed together and that actually for years when people would say anything about maggie smith i'd be like oh maggie smith yeah she's so hot because of that movie and then like i didn't realize that that was wendy and hook until later and then other people are like um from Harry Potter? <laughs> Her? She's hot? And I, I didn't realize. Um, but yeah, the first time I'd actually heard of The Thin Man was... Um, do you remember a movie called Undercover Blues? No. I don't think most people do. I never actually saw it. 
It was um, a comedy from the early 90s starring Dennis Quaid and Kathleen Turner as a married couple who were like ex-spies. And they're sort of like being pulled back into like crime fighting. And they have like this like... Ah, yeah. Thank you, Max. I just pulled up a photo of uh, <laughs> Maggie Smith in Murder by Death. Uh, just wonderful. And... Yeah, I can see where you're coming from, so. Yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> but, uh, so Undercover Blues is supposed to have sort of like this, the same, like, witty banter and stuff. Um, and um, I think it was, I don't remember what channel this was. It was, like, WRGB, WSBK, one of those, like, maybe Channel 7 for people who were like in my my specific region in the early 90s like you know remember channel 7 um but it was like sometimes between movies or shows they they would just have a few minutes of like oh here's some stuff about upcoming movies and i remember there was like this one i think it was my i taped stuff off tv and it was like in between i think psycho and return of the living dead they had this little bit that was like, oh, there's this movie, Ed Wood, that's coming out. And it had interviews with, like, Tim Burton and different actors and stuff. And then they had, oh, and also this movie, Undercover Blues, is coming out. And they had interviews with, like, Dennis Quaid and Kathleen Turner. And they showed a clip from The Thin Man. And, um... It's amazing you remember all of this, by the way. Uh, <laughs> well, it was, it was... I don't know, it seemed interesting. I, it never pushed me into seeking out undercover blues maybe someday right. i'll find that movie you were like yeah well, and, well, what was that movie you were talking about yeah well because it was the scene um where nick and nora are like sitting in their twin beds mm-hmm. and he's like on it i'm in it they think i did it i just like that one line has always been like in my head like oh that's that's that thin movie. i gotta find out what the hell the rest of that movie is about besides these two people sitting in separate beds talking and uh were you uh, at all disappointed when you finally saw it? No. Yeah, I wouldn't see why. It was a good movie. Yeah. Now, why did you choose not to see it for so much of your life? I mean, it wasn't uh, an, an active choice. It was more of a, uh, you know, there's always a, a, a list as long as your arm of movies that you want to get around to watching. Um, and yeah. things, other things just took precedent and... Uh, but when you, when you were offering up choices for movies to do for this episode for Christmas, and you mentioned the Thin Man, I was definitely excited about it because I'm like, oh, you know, I've always wanted to, I've always been curious about that. Hmm. So yeah, if we hadn't done this, it would have been Diner. What, what I'm curious about is, in this era, I mean, of, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, this era of remakes and sequels and franchises, it's kind of funny because it's like, I mean, go back to the 30s and 40s, they were doing all that stuff forever um including this series of the thin man i just wonder like it seems like the kind of thing that you could reboot today and probably make a successful film series out of yeah you know you cast uh, somebody like johnny depp oh as, god i mean can't you can you imagine that happening though i can I well can... The, the scene where nick charles reaches back to get that pillow to throw at um morelli and he kind of like punches nor in the face mm-hmm. i feel like if you had johnny depp in that role he would bring some realism to that moment 
Ooh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just, just think I was just thinking like if 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 some Hollywood studio were making a a new version of the Thin Man, I feel like Johnny Depp would be one of their go-to casting choices. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, like I'm not super against Johnny. I mean, as a person, he's a piece of shit. But acting-wise, you know, I enjoy him from time to time. I'm, at some point, I'll probably check out Murder on the Orient Express, which is still in theaters. Um, yeah, that... I, I don't know. Because that is another, like, well, let's see how he would do in, like, a mystery like this. Sort of, like, you know, kind of classy mystery. Yeah, that's true. I I don't know. I, the, the trailer for, for that didn't really impress me. I was kind of like... I don't know. I don't, really, I don't really get what's going on with that movie. The 70s movie I wasn't very impressed with, the Sidney Lumet director. Yeah, which I, I've seen that. Didn't leave much of an impression on yeah. me, Yeah. I don't know. Maybe this just... <laughs> I don't know. I like the the idea of, like, the all-star murder mystery. Yeah. Uh, but I don't... I don't know. That have, Did that have Mia Farrow in it? The 70s one? Gosh, I can't remember. Because her mother was in The Thin Man. As Dorothy. Oh, that's... No kidding. That's yeah. Mia Farrow's mother. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they could do something like The Thin Man now um, if they just... If they didn't turn it into an action franchise? <sighs> like they probably would? Yeah, because it wouldn't be like, okay, let's all gather on the dinner table and I'm going to go through everything and... Yeah, can't we put like a chase scene in here <laughs> exactly it's gonna be like it would be like two hours long and there'd be like chasing them over rooftops and yeah stuff. tim but because they'd be like but but tim how can we spend a hundred million dollars on this movie if it's if it's just them sitting at a dinner table where's where's all the money gonna go and it'd be like well no you don't have to spend that much but yeah but 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 we have to spend 150 million dollars on this movie well then, get better actors and spend the money on them. Yeah, it's really it's kind of the uh, the Sherlock Holmes thing with with the two uh, Guy Ritchie directed uh, Sherlock Holmes films with Robert Downey Jr. I remember seeing both of well, no, I I didn't see the second one. I saw the first one. I remember seeing the first one, and I was kind of excited about like seeing a a murder mystery, you know? Yeah, because. It's fun to try to like guess who the killer is, which this, I always suck at. This part I don't of, know if I've ever been able to do it. I was very impressed with you tonight. I yeah, and it was only it came down to one one little moment that got the bug in my head about like, oh, what about that guy? Yeah. And then as the as it went on, I was like, well, he would have had access to this money, and he had access to the victim, and he, you know, would have known all X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, okay, he's a pretty good prime suspect. Um. But I remember sitting down to watch the Sherlock Holmes movie, and I was all excited about, like, okay, I'm going to pay attention to all the clues. I'm going to try to, like, crack this case you know, along with Sherlock Holmes. Because isn't that the fun of, like, any murder mystery, whether it's in a book or whether it's a movie or whether it's, you know, Col- you know Columbo or, you know, Murder, She Wrote or whatever. It's like, trees try to solve it. And there was no mystery to solve. It wasn't about that. It wasn't about the mystery. It was about watching Sherlock Holmes uh, see how good he is at fighting and 
these giant action set pieces in which like this you know there's this giant uh ship that's like being built in this like shipyard and it becomes loose and so now the ship is like crashing through the town and it's just like my god what yeah really? exactly there's just this, they just insert all these like big things that's so just like like why because the kids are gonna be bored i guess so oh. and then i see that this trailer for the murder on the order express and it's got like this song playing in the trailer that i'm just like it's like this mod. I don't even remember what. It's like a modern song. It's one that I hear all the time in commercials and crap. And I'm just like, I don't. I don't even remember. I haven't seen the trailer in a while. I don't know how it's connecting to this this thing. Like, why can't we just do a straight fucking murder mystery? I think it's because well, you mentioned Columbo and Murder She Wrote, and I think it's one of those things where like, well, that's for TV now. Like, maybe it's that idea, because there's Those shows are the... so old. Well, no, not those specific shows, but, like, there are all these, like, the Law & Order shows and CSI and NCIS and all the other... Yeah, like, uh, yeah. That's why there aren't that many, like... There used to be, like, this genre of films, like, the, the cop movies. Like, you don't go see that many movies. There's still movies about cops, but it's because of... There's so many cop shows, it's like, well, they're not going to... People are going to leave their houses to go see cops, and they can see cops right there. That's a good point. And, um... Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other, like, genres that sort of fell to Yeah, that. I guess like, it is the kind of thing of, like, yeah, how can we get people to leave their houses and come to the theater? you got to offer spectacle. Which sucks, because it's like, well, I mean... I mean, on your tv on which we watch most of these movies um you got a pretty decent tv so spectacle is fine here yeah and, well i mean that's part like... of the, that's part of the whole problem with where the movie industry is going is that it's like as accessibility to films gets higher and higher mm. as the the quality of films gets higher and higher with the quality of the television and the sound systems in your home why do you what do you need the theater for Especially when it's like when a movie comes out and it will be in a red box or on some streaming service in like three months or less. It's like, you know, why is anybody leaving? And you have all this content that oftentimes is like better and more nuanced and like just more well made on these like television shows than in than what's going on in the theater yeah i don't know it's a, it's a it's a, we're just in a weird transitional period right now and i don't know how it's all going to shake out but uh it's definitely i don't know if it's sustainable just being like okay yeah, we're just gonna spend you know <laughs> 200 million dollars on like every movie or like half a billion dollars or whatever it is it just keeps getting like higher and higher and higher for no real reason I feel like if it's like, oh, this movie is so expensive. It's like, well, then don't make that movie or make it with like, like I said earlier about like, um, oh, you, you can't spend the money on like a rooftop chase, spend it on better actors. I, I what I meant was like bigger actors. Cause you could save a lot of money by just getting better actors. <laughs> yeah. That not, and not just being like, well, we have to pay the $50 million, you know, uh, contract fee for, you know, like a Robert Downey Jr. Is he really 50 million? No. He, it's insane. I mean, he's insane. 
I don't I don't know for sure what it is, but it's like well, it's I, crazy. That makes sense because I remember um, when uh, Ocean's Eleven, the Ocean's Eleven remake was coming out. They were talking about Julia Roberts at that time normally made twenty million per picture, but for for that she didn't. I guess it was something like it was just twenty dollars. Allegedly, Who? this could have been one of those Hollywood jokes. Who was it? it? You said Julia Roberts in Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, wasn't she in Ocean's Eleven, or was she just in Twelve? And she made twenty dollars. But you say that it could just be like a, it could. I, like there was joke. an anecdote where like they gave her the script for it, and they had like a twenty dollar bill paper clip to it with a little note that said, "I hear you get twenty per picture." Because at the time oh, she yeah. made twenty million. So I I don't know if she was like, "Oh, that's funny. I'm gonna do it." Or if she was like, oh, that's funny. Now give me the rest of my money. <laughs> right. Well, I'm sure in a movie like Ocean's <laughs> Eleven, I, I would imagine that all the actors probably had to take some sort of a pay cut just because of the amount of big-named actors they were paying. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway, I don't know. It just feels like uh, like the Thin Man could be... Uh... Well, I mean, if you're going to do it today, maybe they would just do it as a show. But would they know. even... How would they handle the alcohol? Um, because there was a time when you could just have someone being drunk all the time in a movie and it's so hilarious and he's so charming. Right. Now I would just like, cause I, all right. So it's, it's kind of the same with a lot of like racial stuff in old movies. Like I made some comments about the Phantom Menace on our last episode, about how they were using some of the racial stereotypes, which in a movie from the late 90s seemed odd, but I will watch a ton of movies from like the 30s and 40s that will do the same thing, and I'll be like, well, it was a different time. I can enjoy this. And it's kind of like the same thing with alcohol, because I know just from like growing up and living and stuff that alcohol's not really that funny. No. <laughs> um, and like, I just feel like, uh, like a lot of just my personal experiences, like, you know, drunk people, that's that's something you just have to, like, deal with in life, especially if you want to have a social life. But, like, if you have the choice, or the, I, this is more for me because I don't drink, I guess. It's just, like, but I enjoy hearing music, and the only place where I live to hear music is in bars. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what kids are doing for music nowadays. I guess nothing. Because um, there's no more music venues in our area that aren't bars. <laughs> but, like... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's crazy. But, yeah, like, drunk people, it's just something you have to deal with, and then uh, you just gotta... I don't know, it's just not funny to me. Right. Drunk, rich, entitled, asshole. Yeah, that's so another thing. people. The whole rich people thing yeah. now, in, in the age of the one percenters. Like, like... Darling, wouldn't it be great if we solved a crime? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh... yeah I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you're, so like, you're right. You're probably right. I'm sure they could come up with something that would, it would be if, like a nice what, murder mystery with like a romantic couple at the center of it. But And they maybe, maybe they would call it the Thin Man, but it would not be the Thin Man. Right, yeah. Like this was the perfect era for these characters. Well, what if, what if you just set the movie in the 30s? I feel like it would be hard to not have just like this air of camp around it. Yeah. Or because people well, and, will and sort it's of just do like, you know, what's the, then it would just be like, what's the point? You know, because it's just, yeah, like, it's we like already, already have six set in that time. And like, yeah. Um, yeah, I do love these characters though. And, um, 
What if you made a sequel to all these movies where it was like... Like after Song of the Thin Man, there's just like this other movie. Well, you said it in modern day, but it's like the the grandson of oh, Nick and Nora. <laughs> so and Dean Stockwell reappears as Nick Jr. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, he'd really be the great grandson, I would think, at this point. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really, it would be. Uh, no, I think about it. I don't know. Or the ghost of the thin man. <laughs> ghost detectives, yes. They died of alcohol poisoning. Uh, and... <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, after the thin man series ended in 1947, William Powell did a few more movies. Um, notably Life with Father. And, uh, in 1955, he did his last film. He played Doc in Mr. Roberts, which was a film started by John Ford, finished by Mervyn Leroy, I think. Yeah. And Josh Logan was in there somewhere also. <laughs> Troubled production, but very good film. And he's but very and, good in it. And it went on to, uh, did it win? Or did, was it just nominated for... Best, best picture. picture. It yeah. was nominated for best picture. Yeah. Uh, I think Jack Lemon was he. I think he won best supporting actor for that. Um, the Thin Man also was nominated for best picture. There's another. You can check that one off your list. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, but he retired after uh, Mr. Roberts, and then Myrna Loy. Um, she had sort of, you know, like how Nora Charles was sort of evolving throughout the series into, like, this more, like, uh, matronly character. Her big films in later years were things like um, The Best Years of Our Lives, where she was, like, um, the wife who a soldier, a middle-aged soldier was returning to after the war. Um, and that, that scene, actually, where she's reunited with her husband, uh, every time I watch it, I sort of get a little choked up at that. That's a beautiful film. Um... And then you got, I mentioned The Bishop's Wife earlier, where she plays the wife of a bishop, hence the title. Um, and she's, you know, she sort of is, like, moving into, like, oh, she's always, like, an older woman and stuff like that. And um, recently I saw Mark Robeson's From the Terrace, where she plays Paul Newman's alcoholic mother. And uh, it's a good performance, but she just randomly disappears from the movie at some point. And I don't know what the... I, it's based on a, a very long book, I guess. And the movie feels a little, like, choppy. So I don't know. But in the early 60s, um, you know, a lot of actresses her age, like I mentioned earlier, she was friends with Joan Crawford. Like, th they were getting offered these roles, like, you know, like, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Straight Jacket, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Betty Davis was in, and, like... She didn't want to have any part of that she didn't she said she didn't want to play any more alcoholics and she didn't want to play any axe murderers <laughs> so she she made like occasional appearances but mostly she became focused more on like uh political endeavors um she was um like she uh, was working against discrimination in housing um during the mccarthy era she was like very outspoken in her views like against mccarthy uh, but she was a big enough actress where it didn't really hurt her. Where, like, she said, like, later that, like, she felt bad for other actresses um, who weren't as successful as she was, who, you know, they would say one thing and then their career was just dead. 
Yeah, that's just crazy. Um, but she, uh, yeah, she was just like a, she basically in her old age became just like a liberal activist. And she always stayed in touch with William Powell. They never really um, saw much of each other after they stopped working together. But, you know, they would always um, communicate, you know, they would write to each other. And she um, began acting on the stage in her later years. And he would always send her flowers when she was, she would have an opening night. That's sweet. Because, I mean, you know, there are times when you hear about, like, on-screen duos, whether they're a couple or, you know, partners or whatever on... And it seems like they have such great chemistry, and whatever. but then behind the scenes, there it's just you know, they have falling outs and just difficult to work with and blah blah blah, all that drama. So it is nice to know that like you know, yeah, sometimes people are just friends and friendly yeah. and they're nice to each other. <laughs> and it really shows through in in these Thin Man films, especially. I mean, you saw it in just in the first one. Yeah, I mean they. they I mean the yeah, their chemistry is just. Uh... Yeah, I would recommend any of the films they did together i i mean i have the thin man box set i also have a set that tcm put out that has i think six other movies that she co they co-starred in together the only one that i wouldn't really recommend is evelyn prentice because it's the only one that's not a comedy hmm. and it's just a very like kind of turgid drama which uh they do a good job but it's kind of it's just odd i don't know <laughs> not not my cup of tea right because you don't get their kind of like you know yeah i, I just want them witticisms to... and I missed the banter. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah, I uh, so I really enjoyed the Thin Man. <clears throat> I think it was a, a very fitting uh, movie to watch for 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 Christmas. I don't know. I mean, it's I don't know if it really gets got me in the Christmas spirit a little bit. Yeah. There's something about seeing it. There is something nice about seeing like Christmas traditions being held today even after so many years you know like what would it be like 80 years or whatever it's like still something nice about seeing uh like uh, actually specifically at the moment when um it was christmas morning and uh there's a there's a little hydrant on the floor and uh yeah. she says oh that was uh oh what's the dog's name asta asta that's a, that that's asta's christmas present and it just struck me as like, oh, well, so even back then, like, people were buying presents for their pets, you know? Why wouldn't it, you? Well, it seems like such a modern thing to be like, you know, you go down to PetSmart, because there are whole stores built around the idea yeah. of like, you know, oh, dress your dog up in a Santa costume and oh, give him a, you, you got to have the little, you know, paw-shaped stocking and all that kind of stuff. But, uh. I don't know, yeah, really, you know, they've got the Christmas tree, they're out there, they're singing the same songs we sing today. You know, that's always the last thing I do for my cat, or I mean, like uh, Christmas shopping wise, that's always the last thing I do is presents for my cat because I can't have them in the house because she'll find them. Well, so and, I always have to keep them in the like, trunk of my car. The cat doesn't really care if they get a present on Christmas, <laughs> right? So she doesn't even realize if she was to find it early, she wouldn't even realize that she's ruining Christmas, right? So she would just rip it open and have at it. So I need to keep it in the trunk of my car and make sure that I wake up Christmas morning, I find my cat, usually nestled up on my feet, and I'm like, Merry Christmas, Muse! And then, like, I, the first thing I do, uh, if I'm already wearing pants, is, like, I just run outside to my car and get all of her presents and bring them in. 
and that that's for the past oh god how many years now i got her in 2010 so it's like seven years that's my christmas tradition wake up go out to the car bring in her presence that's the saddest thing i've ever heard why is that sad because you don't have anyone else to to celebrate christmas not at my house no i have christmas with my cat then i shower get dressed i go over to my parents house and all the family's there and everything i do that that's not like the sum total of my Christmas tradition is not just, I'm going to go out to my car and get presents for my cat. That's just Christmas morning. And then I don't know about what my, if my dad is working this year or anything. Occasionally he'll be working, so we'll have to like hold off until maybe like three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. But normally we just like, everybody just like meets there, like at my parents' house around noon or so. And we start doing everything and, uh. Oh, but I feel like it's ending early, more and more early each year. Because now, like, my sister's married, so she has, like, this other family she has to go have, like, nighttime Christmas with. Right. So. Yep, yep. Yeah, you get older and Christmas gets uh, smaller and smaller. Yeah, I, when I was little, I had a lot of elderly relatives, so. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. We hope you have a very full, uh, large Christmas this year. Uh, with uh, lots of great Christmas films. Yes. What, um, if you could recommend, like, one Christmas movie. Like, if you, if you had to pick one Christmas movie that people should would enjoy, I guess. What would you say? I mean, it depends on what kind of Christmas movie you uh, you 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 really want. I mean, if you want to go with like uh, more of like a like a kids Christmas movie, I would say I one you know either uh, Emma Otter's Jug Band Christmas or uh, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Both are fantastic. The Muppet's Christmas Carol actually is, um, I think, works even just outside of it being like you know a Muppet movie with puppets and stuff. You know, you got Michael Caine playing Ebenezer Scrooge, and he gives an amazing performance. Like, truly, you know, I think he's one of the best actors to play Scrooge. And uh, it's it, it really is one of the, probably one of the best adaptations of, uh, of A Christmas Carol on, on screen. My preferred Christmas Carol is the uh, 1951 version of Alistair Sim. That's not the musical version. No. No. Which one, which one's the musical version? Was that, was was that, that like with Albert t- Finney? Yeah. Okay. Was that like was that a t- made for TV thing or I something? No. I don't think I've ever seen it. I never saw the George C. Scott one. Um, because that was one. The musical one is one that uh, I grew up watching. I grew up mostly with Mickey's Christmas Carol. And then Mickey's. Yeah, that was a yeah. good one too. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Mickey's Christmas Carol and the Alistair Sim version were the ones I grew up with. And Scrooged with Bill Murray, which I don't think holds up as that good of a movie. It has a lot of interesting ideas, but I don't know. Um, Every year my family... Um, well, I'm kind of like the uh, the VJ, I guess, of Christmas. <laughs> like every so often I'm like, oh, something's ending. And I go put in another DVD or tape. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I always make sure we watch... Uh, Pee Wee's Christmas Special and the Mexican Santa Claus. Oh, um, yeah. Those are always there because my uncle Emil, uh, he always comes over for Christmas. He's ninety-two, I believe. Uh, he gave me Mexican Santa Claus on VHS when I was five years old. And so now every year you're like, 
<laughs> Remember this, Uncle Abel? Remember what you exposed me to? And then you exposed it to me. Yeah. And I contracted <laughs> the Mexican Santa Claus disease. Because you actually gave me the DVD, so. Yeah, one at one point Kmart had a box of just that movie for like two ninety nine each. So you just bought like a whole I stack snagged of them. a bunch of them and I was I was like giving them to random people. Not really I, I don't know how many I know I gave one to you and one to Gavin. I don't know. My sister got like four or five for herself. She gave them to some friends. But Do you, now there's a new Blu ray version out. Do you have that one? Is there actually? Yeah, I think so. Is it I've always wanted to see the original film, like in Spanish. Is that available? Because that film was apparently an award winning children's film. And then the producer Kay Gordon Murray got a hold of it and like had it dubbed and I don't know how much of what we're seeing as Santa Claus <laughs> was like the original uh, intentions and everything. I mean they still have all the the slave children. Well, <laughs> everything... you can't get rid of the slave right. children. <laughs> It's, it's always hard to, to search for Mexican Santa Claus because you... Because it's just called Santa Claus. It's just really. called Santa Claus. So then, you know, you search Santa Claus and you just get a bunch of, like, you know, Tim Allen movies. There's a I, Dudley Moore movie. I never saw Santa Claus the movie, the Dudley Moore one. But I remember when it, um, I had, like, a McDonald's book that was, like, a tie-in for the movie. Because McDonald's used to have stuff like that that they would be yeah. giving out. And uh, I, I enjoyed the the first uh, Tim Allen, the Santa Claus. Yeah, I did too. I thought that was a really good movie. I, I grew up with the Dudley Moore, um, Santa Claus movie. Was that the Salkinds who did like the Superman and the Musketeer movies? Oh, I don't know. It was supposed to be like this huge, big budget, epic Santa Claus in your face movie, and it, yeah. it kind of was not very successful financially, at least. But I remember, like, the yeah, the opening of it, it sort of starts with, like, the origin of Santa. Oh. And uh, how he kind of became, like, you know, immo- the immortal Santa. Now, is that based at all on, like, the L. Frank Baum? Santa it seemed Claus like book? it was a little bit. Like, a, a little bit in that, just in that early part. I, the, mostly the book, no. Or mostly the movie isn't really based on that, no. There was a Rankin and Bass animated version of the L. Frank Baum, The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. Really? Oh, yeah, and it's really cool. Was it called that? Yeah, it's called The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. Why isn't that being rerun every That year? one is, like, totally elusive. And it's surprising because it's actually, like, really cool. And it's, like, one of the later Rankin and Bass films. And so, like, the, the animation is sort of, like, a little bit of a higher quality, I think. And, like, the, the puppets are much more exotic and unique and mm-hmm. unusual. Because it kind of, it, 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 the just, like, the look of everything kind of, edges a little bit more towards like a serious side than like the super cartoony versions that they had done in the past um so yeah it's a uh, that one's cool but it's hard to find like it never it, i don't think it's like released on uh, dvd or anything um i feel like this always ends up happening when people talk about christmas movies is the conversation naturally just stirs up all these tv specials because that's really where all like the great christmas classics are like, there's plenty of great Christmas movies, but they're, like, not... Even something like It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Christmas movie, but it's not necessarily about Christmas. Mm-hmm. But then you turn to the TV specials, and you've got Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, 
and um, like Peanuts Christmas special and just like stuff that's like, Frosty the Snowman it's all this like this Christmas stuff yeah and then um, I think the night we're recording this I believe is the night that they're showing the uh, the live version of a Christmas story on TV yeah um, you know what this year <laughs> my recommendation would be you know turn off Christmas story I think it's a great movie I, I grew up loving it, but you don't need to watch it all day long. Yeah. You don't need to watch it every year. I like it every once in a while. It's just a little overplayed at this point. I think it's it's either TBS or TNT that does it 24 hours every year on Christmas. I think it's, uh, yeah, one of, the, one of them. I can't remember. I, yeah, I grew up liking it. And then at one point, I sat and watched the. In- I would it would be one of those movies. It was like it was on a lot, so I would see bits and pieces of it. And then finally, I watched the whole film like in one sitting, and I was like, "Oh, this is really good." But I don't know if it is really good. It's okay. It's I think Bob Clark uh, Black Christmas was better was the better Bob Clark Christmas movie. Yeah, there you go. Even though that's, I mean, as we discuss in our Black Christmas episode, it's not necessarily a Christmas movie. It just takes place at Christmas. So. My family always watch, or my mother always watches Holiday Inn on Christmas. Like, once everybody's gone. And once it's just, my my dad always goes to bed early because that's just how he always is. It's like, oh, man, it's six (laughs) o'clock. I'm going to go lie down. Um, And, like, so, like, my mom and my sister and I will, like, still be, like, around. Usually my cousin Eric is still there. And my sister has always, not always, but for years now, had a bit of a crush on Bing Crosby. I don't know what that's about. I don't get it. Um, And so they're like, all right, let's watch Holiday Inn. And that's another one that, like, that's the movie that introduced the song White Christmas to the world. But it's not really a Christmas movie because it's all of the holiday. Have you seen it? No. It Irving Berlin came up with the idea for this movie where he's like, oh, you know what? Uh, you know what would be a great way for me to make money? If I wrote a song for every holiday. One of them is bound to stick. <laughs> yeah, well, no, because then it's like every month or every couple months. Oh, the, the, people are out playing my song. I'm yeah, getting, you I'm know, getting that's a royalties and stuff. Brilliant idea, actually. It doesn't always work. Um, <laughs> like when you've got Bing Crosby in blackface singing about Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> oh my lord. <laughs> um. Yeah, I wonder why that didn't. Uh... <laughs> that that sequence uh, when they showed on TV, I guess they sometimes cut. Which uh, I have mixed feelings about. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Don't want to upset the masses. Uh... Oh, masses, not masses. Upset the, the... I thought you were saying it like a stereotypical black person would say masters. <laughs> <laughs> no, the ma- the teeming masses. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Um... But yeah, oh, of the songs in the movie, though, I, I mean... Um... You know, the Easter Parade stuck, and uh, White Christmas definitely stuck. But it's it's an okay movie. I don't know. Yeah, so um, I'm trying to think of any other Christmas 
movies that I like to watch on the regular. Um, you know, I, it's funny because I'll, I'll say like Christmas movies, but there are like a lot of times it's like little Christmas specials, you know? Yeah. Like I always loved the like the Garfield Christmas special. Was, yeah. Was a favorite of mine. That's one we always put on because I have that on DVD. Um, all the Rankin and Bass films. Uh, I I really enjoy. Um, I'd love for there to be a comprehensive Rankin and Bass Blu-ray collection because mm. there there is there's a million different like DVD collections and stuff, but they're always like, here's like two or three ones that you have already a million times. Like here's Rudolph and here's Frosty, but then then they'll insert like oh and here's like you know how the Grinch stole Christmas, which is a great movie, but it's just like. They're always lo- lacking those things that like actually need releases, like Little Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. It's Did you like... see the Ron Howard version of the The Grinch? Yeah. Was that good? I, you know what? I mean, I enjoyed it when it came out. I mean, I know that it has a lot of uh, naysayers, but in my memory, I think it's a very well done movie. And I mean, Jim Carrey does. I mean, he gives it his all being the Grinch. Because I, I just remember like when it came out. You know, I was being all like, well, he's no Boris Karloff. Right. Like, why are they even trying to do this? This is stupid. But I was, I don't know, I'm a snotty kid. I I remember um, walking into the uh, Route 9 cinemas. Uh. And there was a uh, whole, the wall of movie posters of like, you know, coming soon. And one of the posters was just the teaser image of... uh, the Grinch's hand holding the uh, the ornament, and I remember seeing it, and my dad got really excited. He was like, "Oh man, they're doing a Grinch movie!" That was back at a time when, like, that's how you found out about new movies. Yeah, was you know you'd go to the theater and maybe you'd see a trailer, or you'd see a poster. That's still how I find out about a lot of newer movies that are coming out, and I don't even go to the movies that often, <laughs> but like I'll just. Like, when I went to see The Great Silence last week, I saw a trailer for The Florida Project. Yeah, I, I haven't heard of that movie, so. it's, it's got Willem Dafoe. It's directed by the person who did uh, Tangerine a couple of years ago, and um, looks really good. But I had never heard anything about it. I guess I'm just a little too plugged into uh, online and movie news and all that kind of stuff. I'm a Luddite. I don't know what's going on anywhere. Yeah. But anyway, so, enjoy your Christmas Watch watch a couple Christmas <clears throat> movies. Yeah. Maybe watch uh maybe watch the Thin Man the sequel to the Thin Man. After the Thin Man. It's a good one. Got some hot cocoa. It's one of Jimmy Stewart's first movies. Yeah, there you go. So instead of watching It's a Wonderful Life, maybe do another Jimmy Stewart movie. <laughs> That'll go over well in uh in your at your family's <laughs> house. Be like people are like, Oh, we want to watch It's a Wonderful Life. And like, how about one of Jimmy Stewart's early films, the sequel to the Thin Man? after the thin man which has nothing to do with christmas <laughs> whatsoever all. so like, I, I always wonder if there are people who accidentally watch it's a wonderful world instead of it's a wonderful life because that's also a jimmy stewart movie that came out in like 1939 that was just a random thought that has nothing mm. to do with anything just yeah quick tangent before we we truly sign off here it's a wonderful life what are what are your feelings about it I think it is a great movie, and I love it. And, I, yeah, um, I, I, I absolutely love it. It's one that... Um, kind of like Ishtar, where like 
its reputation preceded it. Like I would always hear about it in a very different way than I would hear. About <laughs> I was going to say what? Um, like I would always hear like, Oh, it's a wonderful life. It's being played 24 hours all the time. Every channel. It's a wonderful life. It's being shoved down our throats. Kind of like, this... like a Christmas story is today. Yeah. And I heard this growing up all the time and I'm like, I haven't seen this movie. I don't know what it is. Like I, all I knew was the one. Like every scene... time a bell rings, an angel gets the swings. Yeah, like I knew like the clips they showed in Gremlins, where it's like Jimmy Stewart running down the street, like Merry Christmas, movie house. Yeah, exactly. And like that for years, my sister and I would say that to each other. We didn't even know what movie that was from. We're just like, oh, it's Jimmy Stewart running down the street. Yeah. We didn't even know it was Jimmy Stewart at the time. Gremlins, that's another great Christmas movie. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, but, and then finally I was in college, and I just, I bought the DVD, and I'm like, I'm going to fucking watch this movie. Because it was on, um, I think it was, it made it onto the sight and sound list of greatest films um, for, I think it was the 2002 list. Um I think it was like in the top 100. Usually it's the top 50, but like they had an expanded list that showed like the runners up or whatever. And I was like, you know what? It's yeah, I like Frank Capra. I like Jimmy Stewart. I'm going to check this out and I just fucking loved it. Yeah, I I mean the first time that I actually saw it was about 6 years ago. And it was Kayla that actually showed it to me. It was right yeah, it was like our first Christmas together, and um, she was like, "Oh man, I, I, you know, I love this movie." And I was like, "You know, I've actually never seen it," and uh, watched it, and it's a pretty long movie too. It's like, is it like over two hours? I don't know if it's over two hours. It's it's around two hours. I, think. I feel like it's. I, I thought that it was a, a longer movie. Anyway, um, I was uh, super. It was funny because it has its reputation as being a Christmas movie. So much of the movie is not about Christmas at all. No. It really factors in only in like the the end. But like, you know, watching it on Christmas, that's that thought's not even going through my mind because you're just so involved in what's happening with you know with the story. And uh, yeah, we, we've watched it a couple times since then, and I don't think it's possible for me to get through that movie without uh, getting misty eyed. No. It's that's a yeah, it's a real heart tugger. It's like that moment where um his brother raises the glass to him at the very end. Yeah. I'm always like, ah, like if I'm not tearing up by then, that's that'll do it. Yeah. Just the I mean Well, I could go on about <laughs> it. That's a whole other show. That was yeah. Jimmy Stewart's first movie in like five years, I think. That was like his return to Hollywood. After uh, fighting in World War Two, it's quite a return. Yeah. So. Anyway, we've been rambling on about uh, other Christmas movies and stuff. Not what? just a Christmas movie. This The Thin Man was also a bit of a New Year's movie. It, at the end, is that on New Year's or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Because it it ends with the. <laughs> I was trying to do a segue. <laughs> right. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So, what are we talking about next episode? Well, next episode, it's going to be a whole new year. It's going to be uh, the year of our Lord, 2018. It also happens to be our 50th episode. 
It only yeah. it only took us like four years to get there, but uh, <laughs> or three years I think actually, right? Uh, oh no, four. We yeah, st- we started doing this in like October of 2013. Yeah, so a little over four years. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so we're gonna do um, a brief look back at uh, some of the things that we liked or disliked about movies we saw in 2017. Not necessarily new movies. We saw a lot of uh, interesting old movies for the first time and different movie-going experiences. But also, the focus of the episode is going to be about uh, a pretty big movie that uh, that just came out. Yeah, last week we uh, we talked about uh, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Now we're going to jump all the way to the, uh, the from the first episode of the saga to the latest episode of the saga. Probably, I mean, because as far as, you know, looking back on the year of 2017, for me, this is probably, you know, I don't know, definitely you, one of the biggest movies of, of the year for me. You've been looking forward to it all year. I've been looking forward to it all year. Um, yeah, Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Um, I, as of this recording, um, and it's this is the Sunday after the movie's release, I've seen the film twice already. And given the soundtrack, I listened through all uh, once, all the way through, and I have the visual uh, dictionary over there, which I received in the mail. And um, yeah, so you're planning on seeing it again this coming Friday, uh, possibly this coming Friday with uh, with friends. I might go see it a third time. Um, I might see it twice before the episode. I'm no, I know I'm going to see it on December 28th. Um, I'm hoping to see it a little earlier than that too, but I don't know. Perhaps on Friday with uh, with with the gang. Or are you going to be working? Uh, get out at seven that night. Okay. Okay. So we'll see if we can swing that. So yeah, 2017 retrospective alongside Last Jedi. So well, I, I'm sorry to take up so much of your time on Christmas Day. This is just uh, so self-indulgent. Go get yourself some, some, some cocoa and go watch a movie. And if you are somebody who spent your entire day just opening presents with your cat, you know what? Good for you. Yeah. I hope Max didn't I, I'm hurt really your not, I'm not one to judge. I really <laughs> am not. <laughs> no. Anyway, thank you for taking the time out of your busy holiday schedule to, joining us, to join us for another exciting episode of Talk Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we will see you next time in 2018 and happy birthday Humphrey Bogart I want to talk to Bob how you think you're a fighter eh so what oh listen wife I love you because you know such lovely people.